is Sid Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. India joins the Star Wars League, how to improve relations with Russia, the EU shuts down its UK naval headquarters, and why are people leaving the armed forces? We've got to do something to improve retention in the armed forces. The idea of this report is to try and work out what that is and then to try and make it happen. Has India become a superpower? Yesterday, India conducted an anti-satellite missile test, which the country's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, said put the country in a league of global space powers. In a national address, he said India had achieved an historic feat by shooting down its own low-orbit satellite with a ground-to-space missile in three minutes. Well, let's find out what this means with military analyst Professor Eric Grove and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Hello. Eric, um, only three... Three other countries, the US, Russia and China, have the capabilities to do this. Big news, isn't it? That's right, yes. I mean, India, I think, is trying to prove itself against China, uh, as, as Modi himself has said, that they are in the same class, he would argue. The problem with these sort of low-altitude anti-satellite missiles is that that they only operate against satellites in low orbit. There are a number of quite important satellites in higher orbit, which you'd have to actually launch spacecraft with laser weapons, etc., to interfere with. So, yes, it is India putting down a marker, but it is now approaching a military superpower status. Christopher Lee, um, how important is it? What's the background to it? It's very important indeed. If you go back to 1983, when the then President of the United States launched something called the Strategic Defence Initiative, which became Star Wars is the term we use now. And he said there's the technology basically to take a lot of warfare that we might otherwise commit ourselves to on the land and therefore will damage. We can actually do it in space. Well, this became a nonsense thing after a time. But it is the origins of the the ability to take out low Earth orbit systems. Now, think about it. Um, Satellite observation intelligence gathering through satellites, um, photographic intelligence through satellites, control of vessels, tanks, uh, soldiers, whereabouts they are, uh, again, through satellites, low-Earth satellites. Now, if you can get in and disrupt those things, some of them flying, what, 90,000 miles, I mean, a space station, a space station, for example, is only about the same distance from where we're sitting to, let's say, Inverness. That's all it is up in the sky uh, and just beyond. Now, th- so it's not just a question, well, you've got to get out into outer space and take them out with, 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 with big, big systems. Professor Eric Grove, you mentioned that India wants to be in the same league as China. China. How much more can China do in space? Oh, they can do a lot. I mean, you know, they've been engaging in some quite interesting, interesting operations. You know, they want to go to the moon uh, and, and going to Mars and so on. They are very ambitious. And, a, and a, a Chinese space station equipped with laser weapons could be a very interesting threat to a lot of higher flying, higher flying satellites as well. In any future conflict, taking out satellites could be an absolutely key factor, as Chris says, for navigation, for everything. And so trying to sort of interfere with satellite navigation, um, shooting down satellites, destroying them, this could well be the first phase of any future war. Yeah, I tell you, if you take out the GPS system, you can't even drive a bus nowadays. We're in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble. The whole country would be. You take out that. You can take out a system. You can shut down a country 
by taking out four satellites only. Now, the other thing to remember, I mean, you said uh, Kate, right at the beginning, well, US, Russia and China do this. I mean, we don't do it. Why don't we all do it? It's because we haven't got the means to get the weapon accurately to where the satellites are. Because we've, are. Heard, we've heard uh, even recently the RAF, for example, making pronouncements about space being the focus in the future. Yeah, and, and it, it is the focus, and it's in the focus, for, with, I suppose, about six or seven areas. I mean, the RAF, uh, when, it, when it does its observation programme, uh, which is every five years, it has these six or seven areas, and it shows how we've progressed. Now, progression is not so difficult. You can get into space very easily. You can come back from space very easily. What you do with it, how you protect it, how you use it is a, big th- is, is, is a totally different thing. But space is beginnings of war, as Eric says. If you want to start a war, the first thing you've got to do is to shut down almost everything that is on ground level where we are. And the best way of doing that, or the first way of doing that, is that you hit the space near Earth observation uh, space systems. Every 90 minutes, an intelligent satellite makes a full circle of the Earth. Every 90 minutes, that's all it takes. You know where it's going to be. If you want to move it, you've got to take... It it takes several hours to move it, just a, a quarter of an inch or something like that. So you know where the target is. So space systems like satellites are extraordinarily vulnerable. And what India has proved is that you don't need a very sophisticated program to get into that vulnerability and take it out. Eric Grove, you, you pointed out earlier on that the satellite that India had struck was one of the ones that was relatively closer to Earth. Just tell me about the ones that are further away. How important are they and what would a strike on them mean? Oh, there are a whole range of things. I mean, there's GPS and so on. There's the, uh, the global the global positioning system. There are satellites in 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 sort of uh, in 24-hour orbit and they stay over the same part of the Earth. I mean, everything that we take for granted these days is based upon space systems uh satellites television that i watch is based upon a satellite i mean everything is based upon satellites if you can dominate the space environment you have got as people say the high ground and one of the few things i agree with with president trump about is that he's actually founded a space force because that has to be the key area in any future conflict and in that light christopher can we space proof ourselves at all no i tell you something about space objects, uh, space stations, satellites, etc. We can see them. You cannot hide these things. You cannot hide the targets. Still to come, Brexit comes on time for the European Union naval force. And why do people leave the military? The Prime Minister wants to know. It's somewhat of an understatement to say relations between the UK and Russia have been difficult over the last 12 months. On this day last year, 27 countries expelled more than 140 Russian officials following the Novichok poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury. It's fair to say since then things haven't got much better, but in spite of this, the Royal United Services Institute has been working in partnership with the Russian International Affairs Council with the aim of identifying areas of deeper cooperation between Moscow and London. Well, we're joined now by Rusi Research Fellow Emily Ferris. Good to speak to you today, Emily. How did you set about doing this? Um, Well, I think this project is actually in its third year now, um, and we're hoping to do it again for fourth year. Um, And I think the main thinking behind it was that even though we do have this very difficult relationship with Russia at the moment, um, and it's been 
really under pressure for a few years now, um, it's still very important to take Russia into account. We can't ignore the country. We can't ignore its political and economic significance. And I think this project is trying to find ways to approach Russia in spite of the very difficult tensions at the moment. And what topics did you focus on? So we look at things like organised crime and terrorism. We look at cyber the Middle East, and we also look at the INF and nuclear arms controls. So these are all security issues that the UK and Russia have a mutual interest in. Um, there are points in which we converge, there are areas in which we diverge, but I think what's important is that we don't shy away from a discussion in which we point out our differences. And we're trying to work towards um, finding points of cooperation in future. Yes, you say don't shy away from your differences, but you're talking about this at a time when the whole Novichok story was playing out. Did that cause problems? Did it make things very awkward? Well, I think it's certainly something that comes up in our conversations. Um, it's something that we don't ignore. And obviously the political backdrop of um, the diplomatic relationship is impossible to ignore. We're very aware of uh, how this is grounded in reality. Uh, we know that without um, you know, willingness from both government sides to improve the diplomatic relationship in the longer term, any kind of cooperation um, wouldn't really have much scope for uh, moving forward. You say grounded in reality. How much further do you think the kind of work that you're doing can take things? Well, I think that some of the things that we've come up with are perhaps uh, innovative ways of looking at the relationship. So, for example, trying to depoliticize things like um, organized crime and terrorism, trying to get businesses to talk to each other. Um, for example, trying to get ministries to talk to each other that don't normally have a, um, a security remit. So if you're looking at uh, terrorism on um, subways and metros, we'd, we would suggest something like getting ministries of transport involved to talk to each other rather than ministries that have been his, uh, historically involved with very hard security approaches. Um, and that's something a little bit different that we think would be quite innovative. Yes. And how much cooperation of that kind that you're talking about can be done honestly and openly, do you think? Well, obviously, as you said, the um, this largely was, uh, you know, this sort of uh, goes about the level of trust between the governments. Um, it's perfectly fair to say at the moment that the level of trust between governments and between institutes is very low. Um, but one of the things that we found in, th in the course of this dialogue is that there is a lot of um, ongoing institutional links between businesses, between industry experts. And so what this project has tried to do is to bring them together to talk to each other in a very open format. And why do you think the UK needs to improve its relationship with Russia? Well, as I said, I think that we can't ignore Russia. We have to accept that Russia is plugged into the global economy. Uh, Russia has an enormous influence over um, trade, over the, uh, the energy sector, um, in, in nuclear um, discussions. And as a member of the, the P5, the UK also has a say in this. And you know, despite Brexit, I think that the UK is still going to be uh, an interesting partner for Russia in future. And having taken part in these discussions, what do you think the British government should be doing? Well, I think there's a whole range of things that the government could be doing. Um, I completely accept that the political environment at the moment makes that very difficult. 
Um, but I think that showing a willingness to re-engage is really the first step. And I think that dialogues of this kind are really important because I think there are very few of them uh, still in existence. And I think it's one of the few links to uh, Russian institutions and um, other Russian companies in which uh, British companies and British experts can come together and talk in a very sort of open and honest way. All right. Emily Ferris, Rusi Research Fellow, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, Christopher is still here and Eric Grove. Um, Christopher, while we're talking about Russia, President Trump has called on the country to pull its troops out from Venezuela. Just tell us a little bit about what's been happening because two Russian Air Force planes have landed outside Caracas on Saturday carrying nearly 100 Russian troops. Okay, you've got uh, Venezuela, which has been going down the the Swanee. It's going bust for ages since the changeover in presidency. Okay. Russia and China have been got into Venezuela and gave them a load of money for their oil industries, etc. Um, the Americans are trying to put up some other guy to be president. Problem, the present president is beholden to Russia for a lot of money. We're talking of billions, right? Now, the important bit comes here is that the president gave the chairmanships of all the oil companies and the gold companies to his Russian, to his generals, the idea being they're beholding, uh, beholden to him, and they get a lot of money out of all this, so they're going to support him. Now the Russians have put in people; they've put in a thing called Wagner or Wagner, which is a, a mercenary load that uh, President Putin employs. They were the people that went into Ukraine, by the way, and got Crimea back. They put them in to, for him, for them to be his personal bodyguard. Mm. Now they've put in a two-star general and his forces, and they're responsible for mobilization. And the Americans, and because the uh, uh, President Trump said yesterday, you know, get out, lay off, don't do this. Mm. The Americans now on the border eyeballing. Nothing's so, going to happen. Professor Eric Grove, how serious do you see what seems like a, a power struggle for control over Venezuela or influence in Venezuela between the US and Russia? How serious is this? Well, I think it is potentially very serious indeed. I mean, as, as, as Chris has explained so well, you know, the Russians have got themselves in and backing the Maduro regime. Uh, the Americans have made it pretty clear that they back the unofficial sort of uh, unofficial regime. And we have, A, the potential for a civil war. And B, if we get a civil war, it's a civil war where both the Americans and the Russians might actually be involved. And that could be very serious indeed. It's America's backyard, so America feels it has certain rights in the area. And the Russians see this as, I think, a potential area where, where they can challenge the Trump administration. So, yes, this is potentially very dangerous indeed. And the fact that two days ago, uh, Vasily Kreskov, uh, the uh, general who is in charge of mobilization in the, in the Russian army, uh, was sent down there, arrived with quite a large force, something like a hundred. It was a company of men to see what had to be done to mobilize the armed forces because the armed forces will not necessarily be loyal to the president, although the generals were because they got the oil, uh, oil incomes. Uh, uh, that happening has got all the smell about Cuba about it. And the Very much so. And the idea that the Russians needing to get into, they're re-establishing their foot, foot place 
in, in, in Central and Southern America anyway. And right on the edge, watching what they do, are the Chinese, because the Chinese want to do the same thing. So, so it's not just a sideline subject. So, so will it escalate, Christopher? I think it will escalate beyond this. So we'll, we'll see far more. We will see exercises. That's the next stage, because that's what you must do. The general will say, right, the Russian general will call exercises, exos- Russian uh, forces exercising with... Uh, the Venezuelan forces. Uh, the exercise themselves won't mean very much. The fact that they're doing will mean an awful lot. And then Trump has got to either sort of shut up um, and just draw back his uh, forces and say, the guy that we've been backing to be president instead, maybe it's not such a good idea. And then just watch it because somebody's going to say, Mr. President, Cuba. So, Eric, what do you think will be the next stage then? Do, do you agree with the exercises then? And, and if that is the case, how do you think President Trump will react? Well, it could well be. I mean, the one good thing, in a sense, is that the real power projection capability of Russia is actually quite limited. They can send aeroplanes, they can send a small number of troops, they can send the odd warship, but they really haven't got much of a capacity to reinforce uh, Venezuela that much. So that might limit their options. Uh, typically, Putin, he will push things as far as he can. But the trouble is, when you have Putin on the on the offensive and President Trump, who is still under a certain amount of political pressure and wants to do something that might mobilize American opinion behind him... This could be a very difficult situation indeed. 1962 does come to mind. So Russia wants to have influence by using Venezuela. How do you think it will develop the contacts there? What do you think it will do next? The first thing it's going to do is to make sure that the generals don't think that all the money from the oil is for them, the Venezuelan generals. Russia owns the oil or has contracts on the oil. Are they own some three billion dollars or something? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, 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 it's megabucks, and they want it because I mean Russia actually needs the money. But it's not just a question of that. It, you know, if you stop paying the stop paying the bill, somebody is going to say we better get down there and re- realize that we'll send a couple of enforcers down there to make sure they do. Russia wants to have a, a direct control of how Venezuela is run. Certainly, until they get it onto the establishment of actually having Russia there, you know, you go, you know, I, I said about Cuba. You also get back to what was happening in the early seventies in in Egypt. The Russians went into Egypt to establish themselves as not just an influence but as a force. Because the next thing you're going to be doing is selling them aircraft and tanks and all sorts of things like this. Yeah, well, they are, a, aren't they? Yeah, it's a, it is a big, a major thing. Well, they are selling them. No, they are actually signing on the dotted line. But nobody's seeing in the money, and that's it. And you know, eventually, the Egyptians kicked out the uh, the Russians. But I don't think the Venezuelans are in any position to kick out anybody. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Well, one part of Brexit is happening on time tomorrow. The operational headquarters of the EU naval force is moving from northward to Rota in Spain and Brest in France. The chief of the defence staff, General Sir Nick Carter, was among the dignitaries at a special ceremony early this week to mark the move. Well, Professor Eric Grove is still with us. Um, Eric, um, move is because of Brexit, isn't it? Does this mean that the Royal Navy is no longer part of EU NAVFOR? Not necessarily. I mean, non-EU countries have actually taken part in uh, in Euro NAVFOR, even Colombia from South America, having been talking about South America, and uh, also Norway, part of the EEA, and so on. So if we want to continue, we could actually do it. But actually, if you look at the number of ships that are that have taken part in Euro Nav 4, the dominant countries have been France and Spain. So it's understandable that given the opportunity posed by Brexit, both Spain and France have decided, look, we do most of the work, so we will be in control. And just tell me about the importance of Euro Nav 4. It's been extremely effective. The impression I have got, having worked with... um, 
a British naval officer uh, uh, um, who, uh, who was one of the lawyers of the organization, is that Euronavfor had a particular role to play in all the naval activity um, of Somalia. Representing a political organization like the European Union meant that it had got a certain political clout that the ad hoc coalition and the NATO coalition hadn't got. So therefore, in terms of operating within Somali territorial waters, in getting various legal organizations set up in, in, uh, um, in Kenya and in islands uh, in the Indian Ocean, the um, Atalanta has been a very successful operation indeed. And it's rather sad that Brexit means that we no longer command it. Mm, and Christopher, the moving of these operational headquarters, does it have much impact on Northwood? Yeah, it does. Uh, it has a, a huge com um, impact, I think, throughout the whole of Europe. For example, the the Supreme Allied Commander Europe's deputy, Deputy Sakir, uh, has traditionally been, since 1949, has been a British officer, uh, a four-star officer. Because we are, at the moment, at the moment as we speak, uh, bent on getting out of Europe... Uh, that can't happen anymore because that officer is the one who commands European troops, mainly European troops, uh, in time of conflict, uh, which apart from American and Canadian, they're all European troops in NATO, but he, he commands them. If he's not a European, they're actually saying, well, you know, should he be commanding because he'd be asking them to do things and commanding them to do things, which really is a non-European he shouldn't be doing. And this has all been logically thought, well, that's that's not unreasonable. But there are lots of other commands, minor commands, sub-commands, deputies to different people, and it changes the whole face of things. And you don't get back in. That's the other thing, which, therefore, it's particularly important to remind that, you know, the United Kingdom is still very much part of NATO. And this is not yep. NATO. This is Euro force. That was actually going to be my question to, to you, Eric. Um, I mean, Yes, it changes the face of things uh, practically. Does this mean that Britain is losing influence or is it more of a symbolic thing? Well, the answer to the answer, the direct answer, answer to your question is yes. I mean, Britain is losing influence. And I think it's a good demonstration of the fact that when we're thinking of the of the European security and defence policy, Britain will no longer be there. And that works two ways. First of all, it means that the British don't have much influence on in what goes on. And the other way is that the French and the Germans and others have a great deal of influence and may want to sort of create a European defence policy, something we've always opposed in the past. The other thing, isn't it, Eric, is that when you're measuring sitting at the MOD, and we are preparing uh, to show the the orbit of British forces, the uh, the things that we have to do, the things that we're obliged to do, the things that we might have to do. You start having to cut out certain things that you find that you aren't doing in cooperation of, and that's particularly important. And when you, for example, you get you're hearing about the um, uh, conversations with the Russians. And you think to yourself, well, yes, a lot of those conversations we would do were such as uh, uh, sort of uh, police control, police cooperation, etc., will start disappearing if the Brexit thing happens. It's the same that there's conversations they'll be having at the MOD and saying with all these commands going, sub-commands, etc., uh, if they start moving, then we find we don't have not so much the influence, but we're not up to date. We're not up to, you know, we're not... Don't go much beyond of reading the reports rather than hearing the guy give it give it to us themselves. All right, and we're going to become increasingly isolated, and that's a real problem. All right, Professor Eric Grove, thank you for your time today. Good to speak to you. 
Why do people leave the armed forces? Well, the Prime Minister is keen to find that out, especially as 7,500 personnel left the military in 2017. That's more than 5%. She's commissioned a report to find out. Former Minister for the Armed Forces, Marc Francois, will lead the report team and has been speaking to Laura Macon-Isherwood. In 2017, I did a report for the Prime Minister about recruitment into the armed forces and what we could do to improve it. This is a follow-on report into retention, so if you like the other side of the coin, and I've been commissioned by the PM with my research team to look into what we can do to improve the retention of armed forces personnel for as long as defence may need them. That's the essence of the study. And so who are you asking opinions from? Anyone who wants to submit one. We have launched a call for evidence So we're asking particularly armed forces personnel, obviously, but also their families, uh, who are a big part in this. Uh, Also people who've recently left the armed forces, because we want to know why they left and whether there was anything we could reasonably have done to persuade them not to have done that. And we're also going to ask military charities, contractors, and of course the Ministry of Defence and the service chiefs have also agreed in principle to be part of the study too. So we're going from the Chief of the General Staff to Private Tommy Atkins. You've been uh, very vocal on all of this, I suppose. You've been very involved, you've done reports on retention and recruitment before. What are you expecting to learn that might be different now than what we already know, what you already argue for in the Commons? Well, um, the, the, the problem is, is the difficulty is getting worse. Uh, people are leaving quicker than they were. So uh, when I did the recruitment report that year in 1617, approximately 13,000 people joined the regulars, 15,000 left. So we were 2,000 down on the year. It's getting worse. So we really have to do something to address the retention issue, not least for the sake of the personnel and their families. And I hope people that know me know I've always been pretty passionate about that. I hope that's a fair statement. But also, for operational reasons, for defence. You know, we cannot defend the United Kingdom if we haven't got the skilled personnel there to do it. So... Not just, if you like, for good moral reasons, but also for practical, hard-headed defence reasons. We've got to do something to improve retention in the armed forces. The idea of this report is to try and work out what that is and then to try and make it happen. Well, here in the studio we have a former soldier who left the army much earlier than he had originally planned to. Julian Pereira is a former Lance Sergeant with the Grenadier Guards. Uh, Good to have you in here, Julian. Um, Why did you leave? Well, firstly, uh, there was a number of reasons why I've um, left. Um, yeah, it just hasn't happened overnight. Um, I think for myself and a lot of my peers around my um, age are leaving due to the uh, pension changes. I think that's the t- n- number one thing that has made people want to leave. Um, this being is because once the new pension uh, reform came in in the 2015 and everyone was moved off the 1975, people understood and knew that then once they left the forces, they wouldn't be able to um, get that immediate um, bonus that you would have got under the 1975 pension that would then afford you the ability to be able to uh, resettle back in civilian life on a you know a, after such a long time in service. You know your body's messed up, knees done, backs done, and I think you should be able to then leave and then move into a job that was then 
you know, would then help you out and, and ease back in civilian street. But mm. people now know that you need that qualification. So people want to leave younger to gain that qualification so they can then afford themselves a better career once they leave. OK, beyond what you mentioned about the pensions then, is there anything more you think the MOD should be doing to get people to stay in the armed forces? Um, yes, I think they need to, there's a number of issues. Like I say, um, the undermanning issue, that, that needs to be sorted out, and, and I mean rapid, because due to the undermanning, that means that then people who are still serving, they're then now double-hatting and triple-hatting jobs within the forces. That means that they're then um, going on more frequent operational tours. So once they've got the manning back up, it's going to take that strain off the people currently serving. Mm, uh, obviously, you left earlier than you said you thought you were going to. Um, any regrets? No, absolutely uh, not. I mean, like I said, I've I've got no regrets for my time in the service. It's made me who I am uh, today, and it's afforded me again the ability to um, get into this line of work I'm in now in the media. Um, but um, you know, I think I would have stayed a lot longer. But I knew that joining at the age of 16, I had no qualifications. I joined the forces that afforded me what I wanted. Mm. However, there was no ability to then have a qualification once I left. I knew I would, after 22 years, need a full career. But because of the pension getting chopped, uh, you know, I knew I had to then sort myself out and get a qualification. So I left early and left young while I'm still employable. And you're doing well. Julian Pereira, thank you very much for joining us today. And if you want to tell Marc Francois what you, why you left the forces, you can send him an email. It's marc.francois.mp at parliament.uk. We'll put the details on our website, which is forces.net slash sitrep. Um, before we go today, Christopher, um, we were talking about space earlier and India wanting to become a global space power. You wrote a book about this in 1987 war in space we dug this out i could barely write in those days but i did <laughs> on it, sale uh, for what uh, how much is it now 1p well yeah, <laughs> and, and a bargain and a bargain now i mind you it sold and is still selling up just under half a million copies i was at the stockholm institute at the time and wrote it as part of a phd and when i finished it they said uh, is this going to happen and i said well it is happening and now we heard us today uh, even the indians are doing it and that is all we have time for today. You can subscribe to this programme as a podcast so you never miss an episode. Join us again next week. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening and bye-bye for now.